There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, nice to see you again. Nice to be back. We've been spending a lot of time lately talking about things like inflation, interest rates, what you can do about your investment portfolio, because those are all real things that are affecting all of us these days. But today we're going to carry on that discussion with a slightly different angle as we've got a great guest joining us. This week, we have Rafi Tamazian joining us. Rafi is a senior portfolio manager and director at Canoe Financial, and he manages the Canoe Energy Income Portfolio class, Canoe Energy Alpha Limited Partnership, and Canoe Energy Portfolio. He's regularly featured on BNN and quoted in many publications. But Greg, today is the highlight of Rafi's career, I'm sure. It could well be. It's the pinnacle of a career because he is a guest (laughs) on the Free Lunch Podcast, the number one (laughs) self-proclaimed investment podcast in Canada. Rafi, welcome to the Free Lunch. Thank you very much. It's an honor. (laughs) Rafi, before we put you on the spot, just why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you end up where you are today as a leader in energy strategy and a thought leader in that area in Canada? How'd you get here? We're energy professionals making energy decisions based out of Calgary. We're not investment professionals making energy decisions. I think that's one big differentiation. I came from the patch. I was born and raised here in Calgary. My family's been in the energy industry. My father was a geologist. I spent a lot of time working with him as a professor and a geology, well site geologist, ultimately ran his own oil company. My brother's in the industry as an engineer working at Paramount and I came from the patch originally, went into the energy banking side of the business, worked with First Energy for 15 years, very lucrative years, introducing the global investment market to a very early stage basin that needed massive global capital. And we were part of the armies of banks that went out to the global market to bring billions and billions of dollars to spend in our basin. And then the last 12 years, really, when we started Canoe Financial, just by the nature of our background, being Bruce Chernoff, who was the founder and the principal behind the asset of Canoe, and myself, we were energy people. Let's launch an energy silo here. So that became a subset of the broader Canoe assets that we started with a billion dollars in our total business. And today we're almost 14 billion, of which the energy group that started from zero is just over 1.5 billion of those assets. Wow. So everything has grown tremendously well. We've done it all through what we believe is hard work, both on pitting the right manager with the right assets and also strengthening a group of intellectual wholesalers across the country that can link advisors to us and the right advisor to the right products. And the success speaks for itself. So we're very proud of all that and how it's developed. The energy group as I developed it into a investment strategy, really it was built off of the DNA of how we think about the industry. Well, 
a lot of people think of energy as one subsector within the TSX, for instance. As I said, we were born and raised in this business, and we think of it as, believe it or not, nine subsectors. Oh, really? <laughs> so everybody thinks of it as one thing. We're just geeky enough to break it into nine massive subsectors. And it goes anywhere from conventional oil to unconventional to then the natural gas. Then you've got energy services. You've got refining, which is a business of its own. You've got the LNG market now, which is a business of its own. You've got midstreams. You've got downstream. You've got power and alternative energy and energy technology, which is a group. All these things are different, massive subsectors within the industry. The ninth subsector we have is actually called cash meaning sometimes you just need to build cash as a defense strategy that there's nowhere to hide. Maybe you reduce your risk by just holding cash for a period of time. These subsectors is what really my partner Dave and I and my head trader Nick focus on the most. What is going on in each of these sectors at any given time? We look at them from a top-down perspective, what's happening in the global markets, and the global geopolitical, we look at things from an economic perspective. We analyze it behaviorally sometimes as well to help us make decisions. I've got Nick working on it from a technical perspective of markets and charts. I've got Dave working on it from a stock picking perspective to make sure we're populating the right names into our subsectors when we decide to buy them. And we're all coming together with this top-down approach and hopefully giving people a really good pragmatic view of what's going on in all things energy from fossil fuels to midstream downstream to the alternative energy and energy technology and the evolution of energy that's developing. So we can hopefully take away people's anxiety around which one they should be doing, which one they should be exposed to. We are going to do it all for them. We feel very comfortable doing it. We do it at a global scale. We don't do it just in a Canadian. We've gone from domestic to a much more global reach of all of these aspects. And then we give people the peace of mind that we're giving them the right weighting based on the risk of the investment at the right time. That's our job to do that, given our expertise. So you've raised a point that I wanted to dig into a little bit with you. So how has the energy sector or the nine subsectors how has the sector changed over the years from an investment standpoint? For us, it went from being very fragmented and almost, I would call it, tribal. Basins were developed individually, and their ability to become global in their recognition, these basins, was going to be based on your ability to tie that basin into the market through transportation. And Canada, because we are in Canada, and it's such an important part of the mix of production the OECD world or the developed world uses, we started to raise alarm bells because we started to curtail our ability to grow that volume and transport it to the global markets with pipelines. And that developed, obviously, with a government that, rightly or wrongly, was very negative energy and increased regulation when it was elected in 2015. Conversely, the U.S., if you recall, in 2016, elected a government that was pro-energy and they were deregulating. And you could see the flow of money and the U.S. partners that were in Canada sold out everything. And 
that was a huge opportunity for Canadians today because those American businesses sold out for cents on the dollar. They bailed and they ran. And these Canadian companies like CNRL and others picked up all these assets for virtually nothing. And today in this environment, it's beyond the value of gold in somebody's pocket. It's ridiculous. But during that period of time and hardship, it created a really pronounced negative effect on the economy in Canada because of the impact energy typically has and the ability for this industry to grow and flourish. It's actually contracted. And given the nature of the market today and how the investor has also put a lot of pressure on the industry to be more mindful about giving back returns, create returns in the industry, show that you can actually make money. It has also truncated the pipeline issue and the market's desire to see if this industry can actually make money. The industry shrunk. It went from being a thoroughbred that wants to grow into a very tight machine that wants to distribute cash back to people today. And the good news is, I don't have to tell you that it's going to happen. I'm telling you that we are in it right now. This industry is structured in a way where we've consolidated a bunch of assets into fewer names. These businesses are driving the cost of producing the asset cheaper. They're becoming more efficient at their business. The technologies that were developed, which is the multi-frac horizontal technology was the most recent one. The costs have been driving down in the technology dramatically to get to a more economic state. And with prices rising way beyond anybody's expectations, we've created a debt-free industry and they're structured to now give back the money. And in fact, they are giving back the money. Well, which raises the question, Rafi, because a lot of our clients may ask, like, are we at the beginning, the middle, or the end of this process with oil at $120? Is it too late for people to capitalize on the opportunities here? Very, very common question. Very, very logical question to ask. A lot of people hear about always trying to be a contrarian. So the contrarian view after things go up is that they could go down. What Dave and I would tell you is we think the contrarian view is they've gone up. And now they're going to go even more sharply higher. And that's going to create more volatility up there. But we think the industry got so pummeled in this anti-energy movement and this misdirection of the energy story back in March of 2020 when COVID hit and we drew energy into a negative return. People perceive that to be an industry that nobody needed oil anymore. And if you don't need oil anymore, then that's why it's probably trading negatively. Well, that was more about derivatives trading and air barrels, if you will, that don't really exist. It's a financial game that did that. The appetite for oil was actually starting to increase dramatically because the world at that point, unbeknownst to any of us at the time, but now it's apparent. And really, I would say the Ukraine war was the final nail in the coffin of the globalization movement that was happening globally. That was about a 20-year experiment where we started to outsource jobs to the rest of the world. We were all trying to become one community and we could live together even though we had these differences of opinions, how we would work with masses of people. 
And we were trying to make the East and the West or the developed and undeveloped or the OECD and non-OECD try to be more of a community. And what happened in COVID was it kind of tested that theory quite dramatically. And we believe that the globalization movement started to crumble and now it's really over. And if that's true, people need to really understand what I'm saying here. We are really building on that thesis because it means that we're in an inflationary environment again, when you've got two different communities again working, sometimes in competition with each other. We no longer have access to energy sources freely in the OECD world like we used to. We don't act in this selfless manner anymore in the developed world. We act in a selfish manner. We're not thinking about how to protect ourselves or our livelihood. We're more like trying to figure out how to protect everybody. We're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to make sure we are safe, if you will, ourselves. We don't want to talk about car sharing anymore. We want to have plexiglass between us when we're driving with somebody now. We don't want to go to a mall. We want to have seven vans come to our house during the day. And Wait, wait, have you been at my house? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Again, there was this fear because our lives were threatened. And the globalization thing fell apart right away. That doesn't work well in the system for oil, controlling the demand for oil. And further to that, the developing world saw that we didn't care really. We didn't do a good job of protecting the developing world. Instead, we used all the infrastructure that we built with oil, like healthcare, to make sure we were vaccinated. And they were 5% vaccinated when we were celebrating getting our third shots. And that was a very strong message to the developing world that they're on their own. And they are ravaging oil to build out their infrastructure of healthcare and transportation and trying to develop a middle class like us. Because our alternatives that we were telling them we would show up with ended up being variable and expensive. And they can't use them. And so our demand for oil is running out of control. All the while, we have been attacking the supply. And that's creating a massive structural deficit of power. And we cannot stop that from happening. It's going to cost us more no matter what going forward because it will take several years to turn around the supply issue. I suspect we'll probably see demand destruction before we even see the supply response. What about your thoughts on like ESG gets a lot of press these days everywhere. There's talks about greenwashing and what is ESG? It's a very political topic at times. We've had people that come in and say they like to invest in things that have low ESG scores. And I like to show them the ESG score of Suncor versus Lululemon, as an example. ESG score of Suncor, I think, is like a B plus, and Lululemon is like a D. So what can you tell us about ESG and how it's relevant to our world today? We take it very seriously in the sense that We believe that not necessarily the greenwashing, which is so easy to do, it's more like, let's make sure people understand that it's a subsector of all things energy. And when we assess it from a risk perspective, 
we see it as an extremely high-risk sector to be in. And it's where the vast majority of capital has flowed from into the general markets for the last two years. We think for every dollar that went into every other sector, there were $2 that went into ESG, which amounted to about a trillion dollars over the last two years. The result was not that there was any alternative developed. It was a lot of the money that went into the early stages of the experiments in these new technologies. And I think the risk of that was misunderstood. It's high risk, that stuff. And Dave and I are experts in trying to assess risk of the things we put our capital into. And back in 2015 to 2019, when we saw a period of time where the conventional energy sector was not necessarily a place that was of great value to put money to work in, but we could start to compete and dabble in those areas, what we called alternative energy and energy technology. And we saw areas that were of interest to us where of the 60 some odd trillion dollars that's going to be dumped into this sector over the next 15 years, we saw the areas that seemed relevant were in carbon capture, in nuclear power, we saw it in biodiesel, battery storage, and environmental, particularly Canada's role in how we've played such an advanced role in environmental safety in the industry and growth. Let's take that technology and see if we can leach it into the other places. Fast forward today, we have about 12, 13% of our assets are exposed in that space. And we don't think you should be exposed more than that right now. Because today, in the whole picture of global energy and power, you should be focused on the area that analysts are revising up right now, not the one that the analysts are revising down. And they're revising the oil and gas industry up. The industry is still discounting $80 oil. The industry represented 8% of the earnings of the last quarter and only 4% ownership of the index. They're only represented by half of their earnings power in the index, in the S&P. And so you buy the sector at a huge discount to what it's contributing. And the other sector, that alternative energy area, we've got ideas that we're incubating in bulk battery storage, in biodiesel. We write chemical options sometimes in one of our funds. On the nuclear and the uranium side, it's really hard to invest in nuclear without having massive capital. And you usually have years of periods where you're not necessarily making any money in that. It's investments in time. And so those are the areas we expose people to. They're all private investments that we help develop. We have a water recycling business called Arius that we developed from a gentleman out of Grand Prairie that was doing water transfer and four years ago, 7 million in EBITDA, healthy little private business for the guy. And we and a couple other funds capitalized him to take his technology and some water recycling technology into the Permian. And next year, he could be generating 25 million in EBITDA, of which 70% of it's coming from the Permian, because we're introducing Canadian environmental technology into an industry that has not been recycling. They've been injecting that dirty water back in the ground, causing those mini earthquakes. We are going to be a party through our client's capital to prevent those earthquakes from happening going forward, some of them, because we're teaching people that we can recycle their water. We can leach H2S out of water, which is just unheard of down there. But we can do that because we have the technology from Canada and we're bringing it to them. So 
we're rolling up our sleeves because of our background. Dave and I's background come from energy banking. We know how to structure businesses. We know how to structure capital, share capital. We know how to put the right teams to work, build the right board to represent them, act as reporting issuers, and go about building real businesses that will have real impact. And that today is not something you should be aggressively pursuing. Those areas will again get attention and we've got these things incubating in the funds. But right now, today, you should be focused on the cash machine that's spitting money out, which is the conventional energy sector. One of the things that I've wondered about over the years is with alternative energy sources coming on, and granted, I believe in you have much more knowledge in terms of what percentage of total energy consumption is now coming from alternative sources. But when you look at sort of the outlook for global energy consumption going forward, how much of an impact do these new technologies actually have on fossil fuel consumption? Because it strikes me that what seems to happen is that overall energy consumption goes up. And so while alternatives may play a larger role, oil and gas consumption is still moving upward, not declining as people Yeah, there's would two think. parts to that. I think that the analysis of our usage is misguided as well. It doesn't take into account, for instance, the billion people that we're going to move out of poverty, which is another way of saying a billion people we're going to move into addiction to oil. As an example, these are things that are incalculatable. What about the, how fast is the population going to grow in the developed world, in the developing world that are going to more people in the world, more energy demand? Our energy growth has been logarithmically going higher. There is definitely a consensus still out there that we are going to start to reduce our demand for oil by 2030. And we think that is a watershed moment that people need to realize that isn't going to happen. And it's not that it means the world's all coming to an end and it's doom and gloom because of climate change. It means we have to address the climate change issue differently. We have to address it with hydrocarbons because we're not getting off of it. So how do we get rid of the emissions that are concerning us while using it? And that's where we think the market's going. I'm not prepared to say that's where it's going to go, but I'm pretty comfortable in saying we're not going to meet these milestones by 2030 to start to reduce our demand. We see it violently out of control right now. And I would say the bigger alarm bell right now is the lack of supply that has come through the anti-energy movement to stop the growth the massive capital required to grow, let alone keep production flat. And what concerns me more to our listeners, because pretty much all of our listeners, I'm sure, are living in the developed world, is the lack of control we have over our power. It's the security issue. We produce 30 million barrels in the developing world, but we consume roughly 45 million and growing now. So we are reliant on our power source and needs with these non-OPEC or developing worlds where they own the vast majority of the production. And they will start to use that as the world deglobalizes and we become an east-west world again against us to get what they need to advance their worlds. And why wouldn't they? That's their nature. We have to assume it's going to happen. That threatens us geopolitically. We expect that to elevate. Now, I used to say that, and then we realized, mm, actually, it's already happening. 
would the Ukraine war have developed? Would Putin have invaded if he didn't have the energy control he had over Europe, the developed world? And the answer is no. And so he's using it as a weapon of war, really, is what he's doing. It's already happening right before our eyes. And so this is the start of the deglobalization and the realization that we're going to start to get into a more geopolitically unnerving world. And the fact that we don't have the power to provide for ourselves, on one hand, is concerning. But on the other hand, from a Canadian perspective, is very interesting and positive from a medium-term perspective. Because our power, our energy source is so immense. And we are the heartbeat, really, of global growth in OECD production. We have the ability to do that. And it's not in our government's policy right now, but there will be a government eventually, I think, that will be elected on the basis of trying to properly build out and will be rewarded significantly, we will be, by because now we have such a captive audience in an environment where supply is so in peril. And that puts us in a very good light going forward, I think, for the short term, because of the shortage of supply, and in the medium term, because of the geopolitical issues that are going to amplify the parties in the OECD worlds with reserves like Canada. On that note, I mean, there's been lots of talk over the last couple of years of how companies, of course, as you mentioned, they're getting out of debt with prices the way they are. and But exploration and development has dropped off, I would think, fairly considerably. Is that something that's going to come back in Canada? Do you see? No. No? Okay. Sorry, that is a very important point to make. We believe that the exploration side of the business and exploitation, which is taking exploration discoveries and then exploiting them to find out the scope and size of the discovery, have for the most part been done. The industry went from spending a couple hundred million, 300, 400 million in the 70s. It was spending a billion in the early 90s a year. By 2015, we were spending 85 billion a year in the basin. And we were exploiting. We went from exploring to exploiting. And now we believe the industry is manufacturing. 80% of the production is consolidated into much fewer names. They are way lower risk entities than everybody thinks they are. Because everybody thinks this industry is, they're all coming back to invest in it. And they're thinking, oh, they're going to spend multiples of their cash flow. They're going to grow their debt. They're going to ramp their volumes. They're going to issue a bunch of equity and they're all going to collapse. Well, no, they're actually spending only 70% of their cash flow. They're distributing the other 30% to the shareholder. They're flattening their decline curves. They're not growing anymore. They're debt free and they're not issuing any equity. They're buying back their stock, in fact. So it's an industry that you guys are old enough to know what has happened historically the last four cycles I've certainly been in. And this one is way different. So the market is going to realize it's a way lower risk in investment. And that is another opportunity people will have in owning it today is as the market sees the discipline of these businesses, that they're not out trying to grow their volumes and they can't even grow them because the service sector is so decrepit right now. It is so injured that any kind of spending increases right now will shoot costs higher because the utilization rates are maxed out here that really we've already populated now, we've moved 40% of our capital 
from the energy producers into the energy service sector, for instance, which is just something an investor can't necessarily do. By analyzing it as a subsector, we saw the lights going off, like, holy cow, there's an opportunity here. And that industry is about to see market increase. You'll see analyst revisions starting to go up, and we're trying to get ahead of that and put people in it because it's the next phase of the cycle. And so we anticipate that just growth is not really in the cards. It's more like manufacturing and distributing the cash back and creating a yield business. There will be a small cap group and a small cap group amounts to companies we think are about 30,000 barrels or smaller that will be associated with this exploration game, but it will be much more fits and starts. It'll have a higher risk associated to it. We would say to you today, it's the much better opportunity lies in this longer term dividend type model that's being developed out of the likes of ARC and Termaline on the gas side and the consolidators of oil on the oil side as well. Very interesting. I feel like we could talk for like a couple hours about this stuff, to be quite honest. There's so much. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What I think I'm going to ask of you is maybe if you would be so kind as to come back and join us for a future episode, we can dig into more. Oh, it'd be our pleasure. It's such a dynamic sector right now. And our hope is to try to not give any kind of bias. We're trying to give an image of what the industry is doing today and a pragmatic view of it. It's not always easy to differentiate pragmatic from a bias. And so we want to make sure that we are assessing, analyzing those things, and then distributing those comments to our clients and hopefully giving you an idea of how we interpret the sector. The bottom line right now is we believe that all of the scuds that seem to hit the sector, whether it's an SPR release or a new strain of COVID, All these things tend to be short-lived. Or how about even peaking inflation and the market going, okay, the market's peaked on its inflation growth. That means the demand for energy is going to come down and growth stocks are going to start to elevate again. Well, we're in a fiscal tightening environment right now, monetary tightening environment and rates going higher. And I would look at any kind of weakness there as an opportunity to buy the sector cheaper. Because the one thing that that doesn't change is the fundamental lack of supply that's available. It's completely misunderstood out there. And the hundreds of billions of dollars required to just get that back on track will take five years to do. We can't just develop another 2 million barrels in the Canadian and US basin. If we started today, it would require deregulation, which is not in the cards, and capital to spend that the services aren't even available for us. But even in Nirvana, if all that were to happen, it'd be two years out before we'd even get that volume to the market. There are no taps out there available to just turn on. We are on real-time energy need today, and we have no excess supply. We have no room for another weather event or another geopolitical event without prices skyrocketing. And the only way to offset that cost is owning the sector. And that's how Dave and I are building the business as a hedge for people against the costs of rising inevitably because it's coming. It makes me want to rush out to that bank machine and pick up some of those 
20s that are lying on the floor. (laughs) There are literally more of them falling on the floor than there are people to pick them up right now. It's crazy. Oh, that's great. Well, maybe we should wrap things up with a fun little speed round, something a little little lighthearted, a little less intense. And it's just something we like to do with all of our guests. So, Rafi, I'm going to ask you the first question. What do you do for fun when you're not working, when you're not analyzing these nine subsectors? What do you do for fun? I have three very active children, 10, 12, and 17, that keep me on my toes. But my hobbies are fishing, fly fishermen. I try to mountain bike in the summer. I'm a skier in the winter. I'm getting old and frail and skiing has become more fair weather, but I'm a powder pig, I guess. So I look for that. Cool. So those are kind of my hobbies. And sadly, I'm a geek about this business. I'm processing data and thoughts around it all the time. And we come at it from a top-down view. So it's not about analyzing stocks, which could get kind of mundane. It's about analyzing what the world's doing and thinking all the time. So it's a constant battle with me. With all of the data that you're analyzing, do you have any time to read books? If so, what are you reading these days? <laughs> I have not been a book reader for a long time for the simple fact that my day is spent reading. I read all day. I read articles. I care as much about the latest press release from Tata out of India, you name it, anything, any topic, what the Kardashians are doing and the <laughs> craziness of these influencers on people's psyche because it all goes towards what we do. So it has caused me to be a non-reader for a while, and I regret that more and more lately. And my current life circumstances led me to a lot of people giving me a bunch of books to read that I'm piling into lately to start that process again. Because I just you got to stop reading headlines and articles sometimes just to give your brain a break. I will give you one book I read a while back that my wife gave me that she knew would resonate with me. It's a book called Sapiens by a chap, Harari, H-A-R-A-R-I. It's a history of humankind and trying to understand humans and our role in the world relative to the five billion years we've been on this planet. And you start to realize really that it's about trying to understand what a pimple on a rhino's butt we really are. And it's humbling. (laughs) So really light stuff is what you're into is what you're telling me. I should probably (laughs) read something more light. I need to read a fishing book or something. What about then, if you're not reading anything light, what about any shows you're binging or watching these days, or do you have time for that? Ooh, yeah, no, sure. I mean, not lately much. Let's see, something more recent. I haven't really been looking at the movies or the screens lately. I'm going to go see Top Gun with my kids tonight. Oh. So <laughs> I'll report back on that next time. But uh, I don't want to ruin it for you, but Goose dies. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my daughter's going to have her Talk to Me Goose t-shirt on when she wears, so it's going to be disappointing to hear that. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Greg, any last questions? No, I think we've occupied enough of your time, Rafi, but again, we really, really appreciate it and look forward to... We didn't even talk about natural gas, so... We've no, got a plan that's to get a together. whole other <laughs> rabbit hole to go down, but I will tell you that on simple terms there, it has gone from a domestic business to an international business almost overnight. And so I think the volatility is going to elevate on the pricing of it, but the days of sustained lower prices is over because the only alternative that we've been able to develop to offset oil and coal 
has been natural gas in the last 20 years of any significance. The next one we see is nuclear. All of these alternatives outside of those areas are all very much an experimental phase or not efficient phase that don't give them any impact of significance on us. So we're focused way more on natural gas and nuclear as a result of that, strictly from an investment perspective. We're going to look forward to picking that up. I just know I'm going to leave this call and go sign up on a contract for my natural gas supply to my house. So <laughs> You bet. Yep. Good idea. <laughs> I should have done that a year ago. Listen. You might want to lock in any interest rates on debt too. Uh, right on. <laughs> well, listen, thanks again. Really appreciate your time and we look forward to picking this up with you next time. That was very much my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Rafi. Thanks, Rafi. All right, Greg. Well, till next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.